This is American Exception, and I'm Aaron Good. This marks the first episode of our Empire and the Deep State series, which is an in-depth exploration of my new book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. The series features Ben Norton and me, and we're joined by series producer Seamus McGinnis. Now, let us kick this thing off. So it begins the epic, at least by my standards, podcast series on my book, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State. I am joined by Ben Norton and series producer Seamus McGinnis. And this is a uh, joint American Exception and Multipolarista production. Uh, Ben, it's great to have you here. Yeah, glad to be here, Aaron. I'm excited for the series. It's going to be good. And Seamus, uh, always awesome to work with you, and I'm really glad that you're on board with us for this series. Great to be here. I'm going to kick this off to you guys to guide this conversation. We've all read the book, and I wrote the book, and I reread it again. And uh, so we're all pretty steeped in this at this point. Seamus, why don't you start us off? All right, so just kind of broadly in terms of your background, how'd you end up going from being a left liberal Democrat to being a radical critic of the U.S. empire with this book and your dissertation? Well, I grew up in a political household and I was, as you point out, kind of a left liberal Democrat, uh, conventional, but more critical of foreign policy. So my mom was a protest of the Vietnam War, and I knew about <clears throat> what Reagan was up to in the 80s with the Iran Contra. My mom worked for a congressman during that time period. So I knew a bit about the dark side of U.S. foreign policy. And my earliest political memories are Ronald Reagan in the White House and that he was not a good guy. And so I, I think that that was a good place to start from. I majored in political science in college and then didn't really want to go into politics. Instead, I went to Taiwan to teach English for a year Um, and graduating. It was a weird time. I graduated in 2000 and uh, this was right at the height of American kind of unreality uh, about the world. The Cold War had ended. America was great. We were involved in really silly political things like the Lewinsky scandal. And those were like the biggest issues at the time on the surface uh, for us. Uh, So I went to Taiwan, and when I came back, 9-11 happened, and uh, I kind of worked a bunch of different jobs over the uh, when I came back in the early 2000s, eventually worked on a Democratic campaign in 2004, and uh, did some teaching and other jobs before 2008 when I worked for the Obama campaign, and uh, that involved moving to Missouri and working on his campaign staff, working crazy hours for low money, but I thought it was worth it because I thought Obama would be able to correct the crimes of the Bush administration and really that the, the U.S. imperialism of the Bush era was so uh, abhorrent that it seemed that Obama had to change it. And after all, he was campaigning on change. And so you would expect him to try to change some things if that was going to be his whole slogan. And then when he didn't, reality set in and uh, I, I was left to uh, you know, very disillusioned, especially after the coup in Honduras, after the bailouts of Wall Street and the mass evictions. Uh, that was the way that Obama dealt with the financial crisis. And uh, Libya also was really terrible. And around that same time, I heard Oliver Stone talking about JFK and the unspeakable. And so I ordered the book because I remembered seeing the film JFK. And I remembered having conversations with people, even on the campaign, uh, you know, job about people who've been old Democratic people. And they were saying, oh, you know, you like Obama, we root for him, but man, we, we worry, you know, is he going to get assassinated if he tries to do anything? And I thought, you know, that's plausible because I remember uh, Bobby Kennedy and, I mean, I don't remember him, wasn't alive, but John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, what happened in the 60s and what Oliver Stone wrote, wrote about or, or, you know, said in the movie JFK, which was more accurate than people want to give him credit for. So I ordered the book, uh, JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas, and I read it, and it offered such a big critique of U.S. foreign policy and the national security state that it made me just look more into the clandestine realm of U.S. foreign policy, because if democracy doesn't work, if going out and voting for people and campaigning for people uh, doesn't really work, then it suggests that there's a, a higher power at work. And the Kennedy assassination, because it involves the murder of a public official in broad daylight, democratically elected official, Uh, It suggests that there's a a veto power and kind of a darker force in politics. And that darker force seems to be what was represented by Obama's right wing turn. And that it was I'm not trying to say it's just that it's personified with Obama at all, because it's not. So it made me want to look into these structures in the American system. I found the work of Lance DeHaven Smith, a political scientist at Florida State University, who'd written about state crimes against democracy 
And we uh, hit it off immediately. I mess- messaged him. I sent him my this paper that I wrote to get into Temple University. And he was very positive. Uh, he was very well established. He'd written like 14 books, was, all, was the top expert on Florida politics, was number four scientist in Florida, according to like this magazine that rates these things every year. But he sort of took me under his wing. And uh, he told me that my paper was the best thing he'd read from a, a student, my writing sample, really, uh, in 30 years as a, as a working as a, a professor. And that included doctoral projects. And so that was good because I was really in total obscurity, pretty much. And I had somebody who uh, believed in me and encouraged me. And that was really invaluable. I went to conferences with him. I enrolled at Temple University in a Ph.D. program. And uh, at some point, talking to Lance... He said, yeah, this SCAD theory that we've been working on, we're, we're happy about it. It doesn't get much purchase because, you know, the academy is very conservative, but we're at least doing this work. And he said, there's a problem. There's two weaknesses with the theory. There's no theory of the state in this state crimes against democracy theory. And there's no theory about the role of economic elites. And so I did more research and reading into who, how you, can, how you might address these issues. And Peter Dell Scott's work was huge in this regard. And so I borrowed a lot of his work, a lot of work from C. Wright Mills, and a lot of the things I'd learned from working with Lance and talking to Lance. And uh, I set about doing a dissertation that was going to be very radical, and uh, because I felt the extant scholarship was insufficient. And so that was how I went about trying to figure out a, another way that you could look at this in a scholarly sense. And at the same time, I also when I finished four years of like taking coursework and stuff, then I went to um, teach high school uh, to have a paycheck because I figured I wasn't going to get foundation funding for this kind of a project. And uh, that was actually a great experience in the, in the classroom. You know, the, cl- the, the students in the classroom were, were great. Um, and I taught U.S. history and East Asian history and then a course on the American century with uh, help from Peter Kuznick and Oliver Stone that dealt with films that related to American imperialism and the dark side of it all. And it was great to go back and look at the way, look at history even back in the 1700s, 1800s to see what how America developed. So all these things were, it was a paycheck, but it was also a great way to relearn this history and study it more. And then as fate would have it, I'm studying East Asian history, Chinese history, Japanese history at a time when Asia and the rise of China especially uh, is becoming a huge issue. And so being, you know, spending three years teaching a year long course on East Asian history, and most of that was devoted to China. That was also great preparation for understanding the the moment that we're in now uh, geopolitically and with China emerging again on the world stage. So all these things led me to uh, eventually finish this this book and draw from my experiences and so on to uh, formulate a theory of the U.S. empire and the lawlessness to explain uh, why we are where we are and all the problems that we have. Yeah, I mean, your your story is really interesting because oftentimes you, ha- you have the opposite trajectory. You have someone who, when their youth is pretty radical and into revolutionary politics and student activism, and as they get involved in academia, they move further to the center and become a mainstream milquetoast Democrat. And, and they might still maintain a kind of radical veneer using radical-sounding rhetoric in their research, but when it comes to their research interests, they almost never deviate from narratives that are convenient to the U.S. empire. So it, I think it's a really refreshing story, and it's also a sad story because it shows that you know you can you can be a good student and be a, a good academic, a good scholar. But if you're covering topics that you're not allowed to cover in academia, you're, you're not going to be able to find, uh, you know, at least in U.S. academia, you're not going to be able to find a, an institution that will support your research. But, um, you know, I, later on in, in these discussions, I think we are going to talk about the role of academia. You and your book discuss the role of academia in helping to create this kind of intellectual stanchion on which a lot of U.S. hegemony is built, but I really want to start this discussion at the most basic level, and I'm one of the things I like about your book is that you begin in the first chapter establishing your terms, right? There, I think it was, uh, it's often attributed to Socrates. He said, define your terms, and people have argued that many political debates are actually just arguments over definitions, and you begin your book very clearly articulating what your theses are, 
and what your questions are. So I want to begin with the questions. Right at the beginning of your book, you say, this book and, the, and my dissertation and the research that I've done has been dedicated to trying to answer two specific questions. And this book is almost 400 pages, and you could say that it's a 400-page answer to these two questions. One, why does U.S. foreign policy display such continuity across administrations? And then the other question, which is related, why has American democracy, and more specifically the rule of law in the United States, declined inversely with the rise of U.S. global dominance? Now, you provide three different what you call realms of analysis. Specifically, you, you, you analyze the rule of law in the United States, the levels of inequality that have grown and skyrocketed in the United States, and you also a- analyze what you call a decline in American nationalism. Although when you say nationalism, you don't mean it in the sense of like rah, 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 flag-wagging nationalism. You mean you describe it as economic nationalism, referring to the pursuit of policies which strengthen and enrich the country's collective economy and population. So you could say the collective well-being. So can, can you, you know, articulate, uh, further articulate this, this outline that, you, that I spelled out here of the two questions that you posit and then looking at these three different realms of U.S. policy in rule of law, inequality, and the decline of kind of collective nationalism, and what that has to, to what that has to do with your two fundamental questions about why foreign policy has remained so consistent, and why the rule of law continues to decline as U.S. global dominance increases. Right, and this is uh, the challenge of doing this kind of a of a work, especially in political science, where the focus of inquiry is often very narrow, and you're really looking for mid range theory. Uh, I wasn't doing that, and it was a so framing it, which it, the way that you explain it, which was the way that I went about it, it seems uh, straightforward, but it actually took a lot of like um, sort of strategizing on my part. Because I knew a lot of the story that I wanted to tell in the areas that I wanted to explore, but the constraints of of political science and social science in the United States are such that I needed to frame this around some questions and, and problems that weren't it wasn't really obvious which was the the way to go with this. And you know, so for the the problems of political science and social science in the US, notwithstanding, that exercise was actually helpful to to force me to boil it down to conform to those sort of uh, norms in political science that I was going to frame things around these questions. And so you know, framing it around why is pol- why does foreign policy never change or, or change very minimally regardless who gets elected? And uh, why has democracy, the things that we could measure as far as, as representing, you know, positive uh, developments and uh, rule by uh, the you know governmental rule by in, in that that is helpful for the population. I mean, this is like the most basic stuff. Like, is the are the is the government actually advancing the common interests of the citizens? Like, why is this not happening? This is what you'd expect in a democracy. Why is it not happening? So these three areas are ways to look at at this and the decline of the rule of law. So. You have high criminality, which is high officials breaking the law, uh, high crimes, as mentioned in the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors are grounds for impeachment. Well, we have a lot of uh, crimes from people in high places that go unadjudicated uh, in the government and elite criminality as well. You have uh, a realm of people, especially the financial collapses is really obvious. People who were guilty of crimes and made a lot of money but were not prosecuted uh, really, nobody was prosecuted uh, in relation to the, the financial collapse of 2008 and the basic uh, degradation of constitutional rights that were supposed to have free speech, the right to assemble, uh, freedom from unwarranted search and seizure, and all these things get uh, whittled away in, at different times. Uh, and other rights of like, you know, not being tortured and such, this is this also other, that goes on. Uh, and so this is a big problem. And, and the criminality aspect is most obvious in terms of the UN charter. Uh, the U.S. in foreign policy especially is just totally lawless. And uh, they've signed – it's not just that 
there's this international law that nobody can enforce, the U.S. has signed the U.N. Charter and ratified it, and thus, according to the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, it is the highest law in the land. But the U.S., uh, and you're not, the U.N. Charter stipulates or dictates that we are not, you are not to attack another country or threaten to attack another country, that, that, that aggression, international aggression is, is illegal, it's forbidden. The U.S. does that all the time, supreme law of the land, according to the Constitution, and it's just totally ignored, and there's no mechanism for stopping it. Uh, so this is serious. The inequality is a totally undemocratic thing. It's basically back to 1920s levels in the United States, and with this comes political inequality because there's this uh, Gillen's Page uh, paper that came out a few years ago, maybe six years ago, uh, and these are respectable political scientists at Princeton and Northwestern, and they found that the general public, the average voter, has essentially no impact on public policy in the United States. And uh, so this is more or less empirical uh, validation of what C. Wright Mills was saying in the 50s about the power elite and how they're making all the decisions and that the rest of the country is just at a basic stalemate and neutralized. But here, now they do it with like statistical regression 60 years later, and it turns out C. Wright Mills was correct. So this is something serious. Why is there this level of inequality that people would not vote for these kind of policies and choose these in any sort of democratic system? That, that It just is ridiculous. And when I talk about nationalism as another part here, this is uh, an interesting subject because we associate this with like Nazis. And uh, I think that this is kind of a product of uh, the, the ruling powers in the United States that we are reflexively thinking that nationalism is just bad. But we also know as leftists that like the U.S. hated nationalists, like Patrice Lumumba was a nationalist. Uh, Hugo Chavez was a nationalist. They were nationalists and internationalists, but those aren't mutually exclusive things. You expect leaders uh, to want to uplift the people of their country and they take on the cause of their country and they identify as being a part of that country. And that's just what nationalism is. So it's interesting that uh, this, there's a, a certain kind of leftist who would be like, no, we are the part of that. We have class consciousness and we hate nationalism full stop. Uh, but that, that clashes with a lot of the people that, the, that have been prominent leftists, you know, I mean, when you are Salvador Allende, what do you do with your country's copper? You, you nationalize it. You don't turn it over to some proletariat revolution, the international, because there's no such thing. So national, and it, it, if you read like the trilateral commissions reports in the seventies, uh, you know, this is like the sort of hive mind of, of capitalism that kind of replaces the C the CFR in some ways as the U S becomes more financially based and, um, into international commerce and, and structural dominance instead of just military dominance. Um, they, the, the trilateral commission reports say nationalism is the enemy. So if the if the if the pinnacle of capitalism is saying nationalism is the enemy, then it seems like leftists should have a more nuanced view about nationalism. And I wanted to look at how nationalism has declined in the U.S. Namely, we're cool with having a with lower economic growth and life expectancy shrinking and deindustrialization, infrastructure crumbling, massive levels of public and private debt that the state could could negate or erase. Uh, and privatization of everything. This is not what you would expect in a democracy for people to vote for, like, education to be turned into a profit center, for example. Yeah, I did want to just say really quickly that this is a debate that goes back, you know, 100 years back to the Second International. And Lenin wrote a lot about the national question. And the position of what became the International Communist Movement was always that nationalism among oppressed nations is a progressive force. It's nationalism within imperialist nations within imperialist powers that is a reactionary force we can see that clearly you know a progressive nationalism in algeria and you mentioned congo and patricia lumumba venezuela as opposed to you know german nationalism french nationalism or u.s nationalism so i think we do have to kind of distinguish those definitions of nationalisms and when i was reading your book i i liked that you clarified that when you say nationalism, you're really talking about economic nationalism. And that's a term sometimes people use, which basically means that the, the policies of the government should be policies that act on behalf of the collective well-being of the people of the nation and 
especially the resources of the country. Often economic nationalism is used to refer to like the policies of Mossadegh or even the current Iranian government, which clearly is not a socialist government, but it has economic nationalist policies. The current Russian government has economic nationalist policies. But yeah, that, that's a good question to ask. Why is it that in this age of neoliberal financial capital, the ruling class made the assessment that economic nationalism is our enemy because, of course, they want all capital to be internationalized and financialized. Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest formulation, and I, you know, I'm sure that China uh, does not, and no nation has perfectly adhered to this, but when China talks about, hey, we want to have win-win relationships with other countries, I think that the two wins reflect kind of what I'm getting at in, in, in a theory here, which is we, they want policies that are good for China because they are Chinese nationalists, but they are internationalists, meaning they don't want, in theory, China's prosperity to be based on a zero-sum game where they're screwing over other countries. So this kind of this this is a way to think of the nationalist being not in opposition to internationalism in theory, uh, and and it's a, something important to hash out. So this is th- this is not what you'd expect from a, a democracy. I mean, American leaders, even if they they don't practice economic nationalism, but they walk around with little flag lapels and talk about how exceptional we are. So it's not like they're not nationalists in that sense. They're just not nationalists in a meaningful sense in terms of like the whole nation as this group of people that identify as being American. And a lot of the time, the way that the the state gets looked at as needing this like coherent political ideology ignores how like opportunistic that that becomes because it's not necessarily it is self-interested but it's not always in the self-interest of the nation as a whole which is a big part of the neoliberal turn is that you have thatcher and reagan very much undermining and deindustrializing uh in a way that as you talk about the the rise in public and private debt and in privatizing the commons and trying to internalize into markets any part of private or or personal life is this, I, I think you call it like a quote, uh, pr- uh, unproductive and feudalizing dynamic. And it creates rentier capital out of everything that used to be in some way shared amongst each other. And that tends to, uh, it's sort of a victim of its own success because the empire, as you talk about, this is all in the context of, of unipolar empire. Uh, and as Ben can speak to, uh, you know, we might be reaching a new era where that might not be the case. And so as that sort of, these dynamics play out as a result of how successful the empire has been to the point where transnational uh, uh, smooth capital across international borders uh, can sort of take on a life of its own and dominate the political space domestically. Uh, Is the bill coming due for elite criminality, as it were, because you spent a lot of time talking through that. Uh, In the unipolar context, uh, there has never been a challenge that might make that bill come due. But is it starting to reach that point, or is there, as an alternative, are we going to see a dawn of a new era of more maybe desperate or hyper-elite criminality uh, coming out of the unipolar era? That, that is the big question, is where are, where are the American elites going at this point in time? Where does the regime see itself headed uh, as this unipolar moment of American dominance, which has been the case since the end of world of uh, the cold war uh it, it's it, it is unstable and it is declining and so it, it's created enormous contradictions uh in the u.s and around the world and it seems to be fragmenting away at an alarming rate um it, it, even europe you have to wonder how long europe can uh remain an American neo-colony, which I, I really don't think it's that much of an exaggeration to describe the EU in those terms. They're being forced to pursue policies that are very counter to their own self-interests uh, on the pretext of some kind of idea of Western civilization led by the U.S. Uh, but but what that what's worth defending even with that is becoming harder to uh, imagine because they're clearly in the Uh, in a subservient status to the United States, but the United States is a bit of a mess. Joe Biden, I don't think, is perceived as a a great statesman leading a noble project uh, by a lot of people. And before that, you had Trump, uh, and and that, his election alone demands some deep 
investigation of just what has happened to the United States. And so this is the question, what is, what is going to happen uh, with this regime and uh, how are, you know, the dominance that has allowed it to get away with such crimes for so long, as that dominance fades, what is going to be the consequence of that when the underlying material uh, situation, which has allowed it to sit, to tell so much of the world and its own population uh, how it's going to be when that dominance is gone, then what will it what will happen, or what will they do to stop that reckoning? Uh, this is the, the, the one of the big questions of our time. Yeah, and and I frequently point out empires commit their worst atrocities when they're in these moments of decline and crisis. The most clear example of that is the German Empire, right? Like people used to talk about the German Empire. What happened? Well, the German Empire was destroyed in World War II. The German Empire culminated in the Third Reich and Nazi Germany. Also, the Ottoman Empire culminated in the genocide against Armenians and Greeks and Assyrians. The uh, you know, British Empire with these, it, it was also just kind of, it kind of collapsed and was destroyed in World War II. But we saw genocide in the Indian subcontinent with the Bengal famine and, I mean, these horrific atrocities. The French Empire with these borderline genocidal policies in Algeria, like these scorched earth campaigns. Is the U.S. going to do something similar or is it going to go out with a bang? I hope not, but all the indications seem to suggest that you have these hawks in Washington whose solution to every conflict is to pour more fuel on the fire, send more weapons to Ukraine, accelerate the war with Russia, call for a war with China over Taiwan, uh, invoke the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, I'm scared that in the upcoming decades, as we see the decline of U.S. unipolarity and the rise of China, that the U.S. is going to be extremely aggressive and, more, and try to assert control over Latin America. And we see more and more U.S. politicians invoke the Monroe Doctrine, which has its 200th anniversary next year. This is a 200-year-old colonial doctrine, predating even abolition of slavery. So I think that that's the fundamental question. But, um, you know... We could spend a lot of time talking about this. This is something that you know I cover a lot. But I do want to, to uh, advance a little bit and talk about the tripartite state and how that relates. It's very much related to the creation of this American unipolar order. Um, you, you note in your book that this analysis is not necessarily new. Back in the 1950s, C. Wright Mills, and, and you could talk about who this is, this was a, a progressive, you know, social democratic, left-leaning sociologist who was influential in the kind of new left. He, what, my understanding is he wasn't really like a revolutionary Marxist, but he was definitely very progressive. And C. Wright Mills, um, he analyzed back in the 50s the decline in democracy in the United States, and he articulated a tripartite structure that had weakened democracy and the three centers of power in the United States, according to C. Wright Mills' analysis, were big business the military, and the political class. And you take a similar analysis for your argument of the tripartite state, whereas C. Wright Mills had argued that it was big business, the military, and the political class. You say the public state, that is the political state, you know, the bourgeois democracy, the security state, which is related to the military, you know, um, you could talk about what the security state is, and also the deep state, now, the deep state is closely related to big business that C. Wright Mills spoke about, but your argument about what the deep state is is a little different, and it includes elements of this criminality that we were discussing. So talk about the tripartite state and how this created the, the very form of U.S. unipolarity that we were just discussing, because we can't understand how we got to where we are now of the moment of decline of U.S. unipolarity without understanding how that unipolar order was constructed in the first place. And you argue, I think correctly, that the structure of that unipolarity is based on this tripartite model. Yeah, Mills was a very brilliant sociologist, the best sociologist of the post-war era, probably the best social scientist who is notable for being a social scientist. I mean, I think Peter Dell Scott really built on his work and Mills died very young I have a suspicion that he may have been poisoned. I, I recall reading years ago that he fell kind of ill 
uh, in the, after, at a debate of, over Cuba, uh, and that he his health deteriorated after that, and uh, he died in his like uh, in his forties. And uh, I, I've, when I look back at how brilliant he was and how he was sticking up for the Cuban Revolution uh, and how he died before Kennedy was assassinated, even uh, even though he basically predicted the Cuban Missile Crisis very well in his book, The Causes of World War Three, which was like uh, maybe his last work or his one of the last. Anyway, it was like a semi follow up to the power elite uh, then. But his his work just dealt with the power structure of the United States and how there wasn't much democracy. And we'll talk about him more in a later chapter, so I'm not going to go too deep into him now. But he wrote about the big three institutions, and he said that they're, all, they're really interchangeable at the top, and that this, this combined with the corporate mode of economic organization that eventually or initially emerged after the Civil War, during the Gilded Age, uh, and really rose... Uh, in America to, to to dominate economic life, that it had become so powerful that it swept away the New Deal institutions such as they were, and that really big decisions were made in smaller and smaller circles, and uh, we're not even really privy to how they get made and who is making them and on what basis anymore, and that this is kind of a, a crisis if you believe in any sort of uh, democracy. His own politics it, it were hard to pigeonhole because... He's a materialist in his analysis. I mean, he sees economic organization driving things, but he's more sophisticated than generic Marxists. Uh, and, and so I, I think he occupies, uh, I think, a real evolution of what Marx was getting at, if you ask me. I think that he represents something uh, that is a, a, a better level of analysis than some of the people who strict, uh, stick to strict Marxism because... Um, you know, people like uh, Parenti or people like Peter Del Scott, uh, even people like Susan Strange, you, you have structure, which Marxism, in, you know, doctrinaire Marxism does structure pretty well. But you also have the agency given to certain actors because of the structure uh, of the, the, the system and the class structure. And so this is what Mills was was trying to get at, and other people have, have built on that too. He actually said, I'm a wobbly when it comes down to it, meaning I'm a left anarchist, which is a way of saying I'm I'm a kind of a Marxist who is, you know, of the anarchist variety. Which when you look at what he was influenced by, is he wrote the power elite because he had read uh, Franz Newman's book Behemoth about the rise of Nazi Germany and how you could have the rise of this t- uh, fascistic state in a, an advanced, industrialized uh, nation-state. And so he was alarmed by this, and he thought that something like that could happen in the United States, and that motivated him to write The Power Elite, that this, that this top-down power uh, was becoming institutionalized and uh, predominating in American life. And so that was the direction that he, he went in. And so I, l- looking at that and thinking of being steeped in Mills as I was and reading Peter Dell Scott and Ola Tanander is another guy who wrote about the state. They, they, they go back and try to look at the dual state and the deep state. And Peter, before he started writing about the deep state, wrote about the deep political system, which was that, okay, you know, you have the military and the police and so on in, in the United States, you have democracy, but then you also have the power of elites and they're, they're often intertwined with, Shady economies like drug dealing, you know, opium, especially in uh, in New England, all those fortunes, early capitalist fortunes in America came oftentimes from opium and from the slave trade. And so this is so America from the beginning was, you know, a capitalist enterprise, the Virginia Company in Jamestown, the Massachusetts Bay Company in Boston, uh, brought on by the enclosure movement in England, which sets off British imperialism and really is modern capitalism. People will say capitalism originated in, you know, Venice and other places. These were more like merchants and and trading entities that operated that way. Even the Netherlands, when they were really powerful, they they were, it was a slightly different kind of operation than the British. And even the Spanish were more like crudely plundering places rather than this kind of more commercialized corporate imperialism, which colonized North America uh, for the English and uh, allowed vast fortunes to be made, especially in opium and uh, the slave trade. And so that's where America always had this sort of deep, darker power that uh, was private power. It was private, it was private power. Private power 
becomes a part of the regime, and I needed a way to incorporate that. Yeah, Aaron, I, I want you to be able to continue that thought there. I just wanted to, to jump in really quickly and point out that I, this is such a key detail to keep in mind in terms of understanding not only the history of capitalism, but understanding more specifically the history of imperialism and how in, inextricably linked capital has always been to the state since the emergence of capitalism, which, of course, happens around the same time of the emergence of European colonialism in the Americas and, and not just in the Americas, uh, but with the point you just made is so crucial because it inoculates people to this like Ron Paul libertarian idea of corporatism, right? They always talk about crony capitalism and, cro- and corporatism. They say the problem isn't capitalism, the problem is corporatism. But from the very origins of capitalism, capital has always been directly linked with the state and with organized crime. And you can go back to the Dutch East India Company, the East India Trading Company, Britain's version. I mean, capital and, and of course, the companies you named that were the companies that founded the modern day United States. You know, these were colonial companies that were ultimately seeking profits. They weren't just doing it to spread the white man's burden. And in many ways, that kind of liberal idea that colonialism was motivated by pure white supremacy and the civilizational idea of spreading uh, Christianity or whatever. No, colonialism was to steal the resources and also labor through slavery of these countries that were being colonized. It wasn't because they wanted to spread Christianity. That was the justification ideologically used. And white supremacy was created as the justification for that colonial plunder. But if we don't understand that history, which we can't understand the history of the United States or European colonialism without, then people get lost. And and it makes sense that, you know, you have like this New York Times understanding of white supremacy, which is all purely motivated by racial animus, ignoring the fact that why was white supremacy created? It was created to justify the enslavement of African peoples. Like they didn't just enslave African people because they thought African people were inferior. They enslaved African people because they needed to, they didn't need to, they wanted to exploit their labor. Their entire economy was built on exploiting their labor, the slave economy, the slaveocracy, and then they justified it through the creation of racism and white supremacy. So again, this is also the difference between a liberal analysis of history and a materialist analysis. And I think that's also why your perspective is so important and why I I really appreciate your book because it, it actually has a materialist understanding of how we got to where we are which isn't rooted in like these these popular liberal tropes that we hear today. Yeah, liberal or libertarian, as you point out, the libertarians want to say they they really worship capitalism. So it kind of is a question of first principles. And liberals and libertarians both share uh, a belief that capitalism is is great and it, replacing it is is bad. And, and any any sort of theory that rests upon a, a fundamental critique of capitalism must be also be bad. And so this is a, a problem with the libertarian point of view. They want to uh, worship a capitalism that never existed. There was never a capitalism that was benevolent and consensual and free, you know, commerce among people. You had the closing off of the commons, which was really the depriving of people in under feudalism of the one sort of thing that they had, which was the commons to be able to sustain themselves. Uh, and that created pressures for especially the English to go and colonize other places to uh, do things similar to what they were doing to their own territory, uh, you know, walling off land for to produce products for a market economy. So the first place they went was Ireland, and they brutalized people over there, like Sir Humphrey Gilbert of the British uh, brutalized the Irish and they came up with all this racist mythology about Ireland and how they weren't even, they even tried to say Irish people were actually descended from Africans, not the white people that the British were uh, descended from. And then the, uh, I think, half-brother of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who suppressed the Irish, he uh, went to, he was Sir Walter Raleigh and he wanted to colonize uh, North America. And there were there were actually policy papers from like the British equivalent of like, the British like 1500s equivalent of like the Council on Foreign Relations, people writing about how the empty space in North America could be a a pressure valve to relieve overcrowding at home and really help the ruling class in in England by decreasing these population pressures 
Uh, and this is the basis for American colonialism. It's an economic basis to, to A, get out of England, B, go set up some business enterprises over in this nice unspoiled land, you know, provided that you kill the people first. And so the white supremacy of the, of the racial part of it for Ireland is made to justify conquest. And the same thing is applied to the American Indians that they encounter. And it's ju this justifies, quote unquote, the uh, expropriation of these people and, you know, their kind of genocide, often through microbes. So it's like that accident of history allows the, the Westerners or the Europeans to sort of uh, feel like they're not quite as responsible since a big part of it was done by, you know, viruses and stuff that they had no defense against. But of course, there's a lot of just deliberate taking of land and ripoffs and so on. And, well, for, and, I uh, mean, and smallpox blankets, I mean, intentionally yes. affecting uh, people. Yeah, but most of the time, just by showing up, they did it as good a job as they could have with their chicanery. They did. They eventually become so conscious of it that they do do it on purpose, which is, of course, totally morally reprehensible and you know horrible crime. And if there's a hell, uh, you know, yada yada. But the the liberty. Fast forward to the to um, today, and as you were, you were talking about the New York Times and liberals, and I don't know if you said the sixteen nineteen project specifically, but they they what they that's, do that's is actually quite yeah. <laughs> devious. Because they say like 1619, they actually back away from this and become kind of weaker about it because they were scrutinized by so many historians uh, about this as it being bad history. But they want to say that the founding of the U.S. is 1619, the real founding, because that's when the slaves show up. And that is an important event in U.S. history. But it has to be understood, like, first of all, if you're going to say when the United States began and you want to frame it around slavery then that is automatically saying that like the pro you know problems are related to race and racism when really the united states began as a corporate venture and that's very obvious you if you're talking about slavery then you're not talking about the massachusetts bay company and the virginia company and that was really how it began now slavery comes about as you mentioned they wanted to exploit african labor the only the the main point, point that i would add to that is that they didn't want to do that, really. There weren't that many slaves in North in American, you know, English America, English North America, until after uh, around 1680, uh, 1675, 1676, the uh, Bacon's Rebellion, where these white, uh, poor whites who had been indentured servants rose up against the colonial uh, government in Virginia, and they sacked Jamestown and burned it. And they wanted land that they were promised, but the wealthy had taken all the good land. And so the people who had actually survived their indentures, they uh, demanded what was owed to them, which was land. But the only land was on, the only still good land that was out there was uh, inhabited by Indians. And the British didn't want to fight expensive wars with them because at the same time you had King Philip's War in Massachusetts. And that was very expensive and put those colonies into debt. So the British were walking a fine line between wanting to colonize and have these, this profitable land for whatever purpose, but not wanting to go into debt for it. And so this created a problem. How do you, this labor force, is, they need to be armed because of the Indians and so on. Like, how are you going to deal with these problems of poor whites who want more land and might actually get more power? And the way they deal with it is slavery. They start using a lot more African slaves and they, they become a perceived as a fundamentally a different kind of human, not even really fully human, in the South in order to justify the institution of slavery, and the, but for the purposes of maintaining the hegemony of the dominant planter class in the South. Uh, and this is really the basis of American racism and why racism is so salient and powerful in the U.S. is because it's backed by the, econo the economic interests and the hegemony of the of the ruling elite. And so racism exists for this reason. And it becomes so powerful and entrenched in American culture because of that. And that is the key fact that the 1619 project wants to obscure. Instead, they want to make it as like, oh, it's just racist. And these people did this because they were racist. And they've been racist for a long time. And we need to combat this racism. And uh, it's going to be a long task. So we're probably never going to really ever totally do it. But we'll just keep working at it, trying to solve this problem, which of course is never Biden. going to be solved. <laughs> By, by voting Democrat. And so this is this is uh, anything to avoid looking at capitalism as as a, the heart of the, the problem and this sort of fundamental exploitation that is baked into the cake of capitalism and imperialism, because from its birth, it was, you know, 
exploitation is a part of civilization that predates capitalism, obviously, but capitalism takes it to a new stage and it kind of makes it the basis for organizing society around economic activity and exploitation. And it's always been hand in hand with imperialism. And that's something people have to recognize if you really want to get to the root of, uh, of our problems. So this is this is really important, and I, I'm glad you focus on that. Yeah, that aspect there's there's a really good book about this by the Field Sisters, uh, uh, Racecraft, and there's also another really good book, Invention of the White Race, by Theodore Allen, uh, for people who are interested in, the, in a kind of a materialist analysis of racism and white supremacy. But go ahead, Seamus. Yeah, I think we're I think you hitting on something really yeah important here in terms of the the racial dimension coming out of some of that that early sort of capitalist expansion and everything. I mean, uh, there's also sort of an ideological aspect as to how liberalism can fancy itself more progressive today while also justifying all kinds of atrocities at at that point in time. And I would point out something that, uh, you know, Ben, you were pointing out some of the parallels or the, you know, there's this continuity in terms of the European colonial empires and then American. But we have this internal sense of distance from the British Empire where, uh, uh, and it, I think it goes beyond just the fact that we got our independence from them and so we wanna separate our nature from theirs uh, towards something else where like the American political imagination is, is centered around a, a, more of a parallel with Rome. Like I, I think a lot of people tend to think of us as more paralleled with the Roman Empire and not European colonialism and there's plenty of material parallels there, but our imagination is divorced from that for a reason. And I think it's, A, given us a lot of power, uh, at least prior to the full sort of our claiming full hegemony post-World War II, we were able to play on the anti-colonial story a lot where, you know, we sort of could act as the, the prime example of what you could do when you got out from under the thumb of colonialism and sort of play act as that that anti-imperial power and that gets at something at the at the core of liberalism again that um there's not just that sort of narrative power there but there's a a supposed neutrality that comes about out of that where it's like like specifically we're going to talk more about the financial aspect of the empire i'm sure but the idea uh, there's nowhere that it's more clear that American imperialism is always, it's never been in the same way that it was like for the British, it's bringing the crown to the corners of the earth and pushing the crown. It's always been like the Romans, it's in the interest of the Senate and the, and the Imperium, the people. And we always do that for Americans. We went into Iraq because it's about Americans' interests and keeping them quote unquote safe or their gas prices down and wh whatever you wanted to, to go with as an explanation, it's always used under the guise of the interests of the people uh, which, as we've talked about, it tends to, to backfire and it's coming home. But specifically, the financial structure of the empire has allowed a, a sort of uh, the spread of an idea of the neutral rules of the game that is sitting at the core of it. I'm sure we'll talk more about liberalism, too. But there's a false uh, sense of neutrality as to the financial rules of the game where all the institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, are supposedly neutral and they don't they're not explicitly under U.S. control, when in reality the entire thing is built to have capital flows come back to the U.S. And even in the neocolonial era, it works the exact same way, where we're able to hide the explicit colonial relations that you know, the European powers had, but we're still able to get it to function in the same way and hide behind a lot of that, that ideology that, that obscures the way that the power relation actually plays out. Uh, and, and that allows us to tell us tell ourselves this story that we're more like the Romans and not like the British, for example. Yeah, they, the, the U.S. was full of kind of Anglophiles in the establishment, but they were influenced a bit by the Rome, Romans with the, the Senate, you know, having it called the Senate. And, but it, really England itself with the, the England sort of sees itself as the heir and then the U.S. later although less self-consciously, England saw itself as the heir to Western civilization. And so they embraced the Greeks, embraced the, the, the Romans and so on. The British system was in theory modeled on aspects of like taken from like Aristotle's politics and his different kinds of government. So the crown was supposed to represent uh, mon monarchy, 
which was one of the forms of government. The House of Lords was supposed to represent like oligarchy, and the House of Commons was supposed to represent uh, democracy. And so this was, in theory, the, this is how the English sort of presented themselves as this great uh, inheritor of Western civilization and, the, uh, and them creating a synthesis of its, of its best uh, political uh, elements. And then, which of course, you know, proceeds to have an empire that covers, you know, well, like the sun never sets on, supposedly. So this was, this was it. And what happens in Britain is similar to what happens in the, the U.S., that you have a, a change uh, where the visible parts of the government are less uh, decisive and other parts are, are more decisive. And that is, you know, parts of that come to uh, the fore in the theory of the tripartite state in the United States. That was where I was was trying to go with with that, and as as Ben pointed out, the the public state is pretty easy to understand and being analogous to Mills, uh, you know, po- politicians, you know, the political directorate as one of the big three, and a security state is the which he also calls the warlords. That's your national security state, and when he talks about uh, big business. I see that as being, in a way, the power that animates what I what I call uh, the deep state, which is not to say that it is something you can. Uh, it's more abstract and nebulous, but it is not something that you can purely say comes from the public state. It's not something that you can say is here. We have identified it in the national security state, and it's not coming from something in civil society that is somehow walled off from the rest of the uh, state or the regime, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, the if you wanted to say as a synecdoche, uh, capitalism is the deep state. That's not there's that's not the worst thing you could say. But of course, I try to go on and uh, hash this out more uh, definitively in the in the book to try to explain what I mean. And I'm it, when it comes to the deep state, I have a broad, inclusive uh, understanding of it. In that, it can mean I, I can say the deep state and really mean more or less what people mean when they say the establishment, like that set of interests and institutions and individuals that uh, rule by means of private agreement rather than, you know, democratic means like that. That's what we think of when we think of the establishment and uh, in a way the deep state could be thought of that way. So you could think of these institutions that are, that in, that wield power, but in less obvious ways than like Congress, you know, like the Council on Foreign Relations, you can say is part of the deep state, or these foundation, these foundations that in, influence academia and the in, so-called independent media, they could be considered part of the deep state. Or you can use the deep state to really mean, and this is where it's, this is the meaning that's taken from the Turkish version of the deep state, where it really is this clandestine network where you're talking about the most opaque, secretive, lawless parts of the actual uh, government. And then, so the deep state can, can refer to those as well. Uh, and I don't necessarily, I don't see a big contradiction in like having it be applicable both ways, because ultimately what we're talking about is a system of top-down governance disguised uh, with a democratic veneer. And the Democrat, the public state is the veneer uh, and the security state protects the status quo. uh, But the deep state really sets the agenda in both of them and deep political power, the power of private wealth, especially really heavily influences, really dominates the public state. That is electoral politics. But it also shaped the way that the national security state was formed and organized after World War II, you know, the way that you're going to have this National Security Council, uh, the Joint Chiefs, the Central Intelligence Agency, eventually the NSA, all of these were done with in, uh, decisive input from the super rich and the emissaries of the super rich. And so it, you can't just look at it as being a security state designed to pr- safeguard the constitutional government. Like it's actually safeguarding a lot more, including the uh, existing oligarchy of private wealth. And so this is what we, the tripartite state exists in a dictatorship that's an outright dictatorship. You don't need a deep state because the public face of the state is the same as the deep state and the security state, right? But in a, in a nominal democracy, things are done covertly and therefore you end up with this tri, tripartite structure, I think, especially if you're managing the, the empire, 
then you're going to have your visible security state, your visible political decision makers, public officials, and you're going to have the establishment that every new person in the military and the political directorate has to deal with, uh, and, and that involves making sure that your policy prescriptions and appointments are satisfactory in the eyes of the richest and most powerful uh, people and interests in the United States. Yeah, and, and I think you you really summarize it well when you say that the institutions that exercise undemocratic power over state and society collectively comprise the deep state. So you say the deep state is an outgrowth of the overworld of private wealth. And maybe you can describe what you mean by it when you say overworld and underworld. But I think for me that that's a really good way of describing it because what it really is is when you have an empire, when you, when you have a you know, a capitalist society, but especially when you have a global spanning empire, you have to carry out these illegal actions, these criminal actions in order to maintain your hege hegemony, to maintain your power. Assassinations, um, you know, coups, you know, rigging elections, etc. The deep state is where that activity happens, is where that activity is organized. Well, you have the political state that maintains this you know veneer of democracy and the rule of law in order to maintain that that illusion of democracy and rule of law you have to have behind the scenes the deep state at least if you want to maintain a global spanning capitalist empire you need to have that dirty work that happens behind the scenes and and you say it very well again here in your book that the dominance of the deep state has diminished u.s democracy to such an extent that it's justified to describe ours as a deep state system. So you argue that the deep state, because this criminal activity has become so important to maintaining the stability of this U.S. empire, and we see now it's spiraling out of control and that criminality is also spiraling out of control, that that has actually removed any semblance of democracy from the system. And then you add that this, you call this covert lawlessness, this covert lawlessness with which the U.S. pursued international dominance after World War II had the cumulative effect of transforming an imperfect democracy, a very imperfect democracy, into a tripartite state system characterized by covert top-down rule. So, I mean, maybe you can further explain what, what, what you mean by that. And then, of course, also what the overworld and underworld are. Right. The overworld and underworld, I take the term overworld from uh, Peter Duff Scott used it. I didn't really know. I hadn't heard that term too much uh, in my life and before reading Peter, except for video games. I think Zelda, they refer to the overworld where you walk <laughs> around before you like go into the dungeons, right? But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the higher levels of uh, the political-economic elite, private wealth, so people like the Rockefellers, the Morgans, uh, other very wealthy people that would be in a position to influence uh, policy. So uh, the, the the super rich and the people that serve them. So you know, like uh, William Randolph Hearst would be you know a, a part of this. And then some of the people that are known for, that are more flamboyant uh, might not even be really the more Im important people. I think that it's quite possible that much of the class structure in the U.S. is is opaque by design and that because they control the legislative process and they can create the legal frameworks for foundations and so on and holding companies, we may not actually know who some of the most important people are. And people like Bezos or Bill Gates or, or Elon Musk, they may actually function in a way as kind of uh, like a cover story for like the rotating winner of capitalism it, because you have to wonder when – at what point did the overworld of like Rockefeller oil, you know, standard oil and uh, JP Morgan, uh, when they, when Chase Manhattan, you know, was also a Rockefeller company, like when did they, or the did Rockefeller at Freeport Sulphur, Freeport McMoran, that's one of those are Rockefeller companies. Like when did they ever, when did their investments ever not become super lucrative? When did they ever stop accumulating more and more, more wealth is an, is an open question. But the overworld and the underworld of organized crime, so the overworld of private wealth, which Peter Dell Scott uh, really goes into better than anyone else in this in this area, uh, and the underworld of or, of organized crime, 
they're more related than uh, is typically recognized. It's common in sort of generic liberal understandings to see like the government and society and the economy kind of working about like they tell you in civics classes and whatever and when you're growing up and going to American high schools and whatever that it's like basically above board and that there's then there's this organized crime stuff and and if it becomes a big enough problem then it becomes like something you could call corruption and so on but it's not that organized crime and the underworld of organized crime is uh, something outside of the system that is a problem. It's that it's always there. And it's another word for organized crime is tolerated crime. And so in a place like Chicago, for example, uh, through the thirties, uh, there were, there were thousands and thousands of unsolved murders that you just are, that you knew were never going to be solved because the, the authorities were so corrupted by uh, organized crime and crime syndicates that, that they were a part of the of the system of governance, and in the U.S., as far as imperialism goes, I mean, a, a really, they create all these lawless actors to police the Cold War, you know, and and do the things in the night to protect us from communism or whatever. And it's like the that's when you get institutionalized these covert action policies. And also the cover story element becomes institutionalized as well, where the government's going to do something gangsterish and it's going to create a built-in story that's going to be the pretend story to explain what happened and that it wasn't just the U.S. doing gangster business, but it was like something else happened. It was a public uprising to overthrow a ruler or whatever. You know, that, that gets institutionalized. But the basic contours of that are not were in existence in the U.S. before the Cold War. And in Latin America, it's the most obvious. So in Honduras, around 1912, uh, if I recall correctly, you have Sam Zamuri, who went down to Honduras with Machine Gun Maloney and Lee Christmas. Machine Gun Maloney was a mobster, as you might guess. And Lee Christmas, who was a soldier of fortune, and then they bribed some Honduran officials. And they basically overthrew the government of Honduras because Honduras was looking to make uh, the banana company pay its fair share on taxes on land that it owned there because they go down and buy up all the land. You have all these peasants who can't really do anything but farm, but they don't have any land. Horrible for Latin America. I mean, you understand this basic dynamic because you're in Nicaragua. I'm sure you know this well. But the the key is like, think about what Sam Zamuri did. He got in a boat from New Orleans, sailed down to Honduras with a, a mercenary and a gangster and some and bought off officials and he just overthrew a government which is just what the CIA would do later, okay? And he didn't do it because of global communist conspiracy. He did it to advance his own economic interests. And uh, this is a kind of like imperialism, but carried out without government sanction at this point. It would have violated like the you know neutrality acts and other things. Not that these people often got prosecuted for that, but in theory they could, and some people actually did. But uh, in the Cold War, this kind of thing gets institutionalized and brought into the state. Uh, and so even still, maybe you'd still want to say that, well, it was anti-communism that was the justification for this. It was really, you got to protect, you you can't let communists encroach because it's just bad news. They're threatening the American way of life. But then after the Cold War, does the policy change? You know, and the answer is no. Like the George Bush, the first overthrows, yeah, he overthrows Aristide using paramilitary people connected to the drug traffic. Uh, and then George W. Bush overthrows Aristide again, uh, using also drug uh, drug connected assets, like staging a fake invasion from Dominican Republic. And I believe the guy involved in the 2004 Aristide coup eventually came out and said, like, yeah, the CIA was putting me up to this. But the end result was the CIA, the U.S. forced Aristide at gunpoint to resign and they kidnapped him and took him to Africa. Right. And so this is after the Cold War. They try to overthrow Chavez and they fail in like 2002. Uh, They've had these operations against Nicaragua in recent years and Venezuela. Um, And there's no Cold War. There's no Cold War fig leaf to uh, explain these away. And so if they were doing this kind of stuff before the Cold War and they were doing it after the Cold War, of course, they were doing it during the Cold War. Well, the explanation has to be something bigger and deeper than the you know, exigencies of the Cold War itself. And that needs an explanation and it needs an understanding of how it gets brought into the state. And so the deep political system that existed before World War II, which you could definitely see Sam Zamuri and his, you know, 1913 coup as being 
emblematic of the deep political system. It get, with the creation of the CIA and the the launching of the Cold War, you know, all taking the gloves off to fight communism uh, and justifying any measures taken to subvert the communist conspiracy. You have these elements brought into the state and made a, a part of the regime uh, and made much more powerful. And that is that is basically the emergence of the tripartite state, which was different than a, a deep a, a, a semi-democracy with a deep political system. Uh, now you have a regime that brings in the deep political system and gives it total state, total state sanction. That's it for part one of Empire and the Deep State. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode and providing the music. I'd also like to express my gratitude for Casey Moore's episode art. Thank you for your support as we mind the darkness. Whoa!